Have you been looking for a quality brand of CBD oil and didn't know where to turn? Let me introduce you to Botan CBD. Go to BotanCBD.com, that's B-O-T-A-N-C-B-D.com, and you'll see a full line of CBD oil products. The benefits of CBD oil are plentiful, including pain relief, anti-inflammation, mental clarity and focus, stress and anxiety reliever, and the list goes on. I've been using Botan CBD oil on my sciatica pain, and it makes it disappear. You can rub it on the body or take it orally and you can trust that Botan CBD is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. They are a pharmaceutical grade organic CBD small batch and handcrafted for you. Head on over to BotanCBD.com and use the code Jimmy at checkout for 15% off your first order. Live life well. Botan CBD. Living the vida loca, this show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up the avocados, fry some eggs, time to explore the longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer, motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey. Hey, hey guys, we're back here on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I'm very privileged to welcome back on the podcast again. It's been a few years since we've had Dr. Richard Feynman on the show. But if you don't know who Richard Feynman is, you really need to know about this guy. He's been a researcher in low carbohydrate diets, uh, carbohydrate restriction long before keto was a thing in the mainstream. I remember going to a lot of obesity conferences with Richard, uh, and Richard was a part of uh, various uh, movements in the realm of trying to proliferate carbohydrate restriction. He's the founder and former co-editor-in-chief of the journal Nutrition and Metabolism. He has a BA from the University of Rochester, as well as a PhD in chemistry from the University of Oregon. He's the principal author on a comprehensive review called Dietary Carbohydrate Restriction as the First Approach in Diabetes Management, Critical Review and Evidence-Based. And he also has a previous book called Nutrition in Crisis, which is now in its second edition. But he's here today, you guys, to talk about the second edition uh, of Nutrition in Crisis, Flawed Studies, Misleading Advice, and the Real Science of Human Metabolism. Richard, welcome back. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah, man. So I have known you for a very long time, way back in the day when I had first started blogging after losing 180 pounds on the Atkins diet um, and then started blogging. And you had the Nutrition and Metabolism Society at the time, and you guys held a conference. You'd already done uh, a couple of other conferences prior to this one, but I went to the one in 2006 where I was exposed to all of this low-carb ketogenic science long before keto was a thing in the culture what do you think about what all's happening now with keto being a huge thing in the culture? Well, it's uh, really quite remarkable. It's, um, I, I think there's very good science. And um, I myself am now investigating the uh, role of ketogenic diets in cancer. Yes. And uh, it's uh, very exciting because, well, many people have pointed out that scientists dote on ignorance and we uh, really don't know a lot about this <laughs> uh, and uh and it's our own fault i mean really you know m all of us learned about keto uh, ketosis 
in the context of untreated type 1 diabetes. Right. And uh, we also thought of uh, ketosis as the consequence and uh, adaptive mechanism in uh, either starvation or uh, carbohydrate restriction. Yep. And we really underestimated the potential of ketone bodies themselves as metabolic elements. And while we still don't understand too much about it, uh, a moment's reflection tells us that we should have uh, been thinking about this a long time ago. I mean, our right. our ancestors uh, did not get three square meals a day and <laughs> lived on uh, ketone bodies. No, yeah. So I think it's very important. And, and you see that in the uh, metabolic pathways, which are very uh, complicated and clearly exert uh, extensive control over uh, metabolism. So, Richard, what's amazing to me is we've known for about 100 years that a ketogenic approach is good for patients with epilepsy trying to control the seizures. We know about 30% of them get controlled very well as a direct result of carbohydrate restriction. And you would have thought that that would have, would have piqued the curiosity of pretty much any other neurological disorders that are out there, things like cancer, uh, Alzheimer's disease, all kinds of things that would happen in the brain. Why don't you think that's caught on more in the research world? Because we ain't that smart. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, we also knew about it in diabetes. I mean, yes, uh, exactly. Before insulin. Now, in the case of diabetes, of course, we we were misled in some way. The treatment for diabetes before the discovery of insulin, of course, was either starvation or a low carbohydrate diet. That's right. But we misunderstood the implication of insulin. You know, once insulin was discovered, people started to think that diabetes was a hormone deficiency disease, Yeah, which, of course, superficially it is, or at least uh, type 1 diabetes is, but it's really a systems disease. And so there was a tendency to think now that we have insulin, people can eat a, quote, normal diet. Yeah. And uh, they just have to, quote, cover it with insulin. <laughs> and that's uh, caused a lot of harm, I think. Oh, I have a story about that. I was in Costco the other day. And when I was checking out, they know I write books about ketogenic diets. And this lady named Juanita uh, I was getting some cheese, little cracker things called moon cheese. And she's like, oh, are those good? I said, yeah, I, you know, I eat keto. And so I, I like to have things that are low in carbohydrates so it doesn't, you know, mess with my blood sugar and insulin levels. Oh, I'm type two diabetic, but I love my carbs too much. So I, I was carbohydrate restricting for a while, but I got tired of that. And I knew I could go back to the insulin and the drugs and be OK. <laughs> and so that's kind of where we are in the thinking of mainstream people, they're not being educated that this isn't a freebie. Right. But at least it's their choice. They the, do make the choice. That's right. The objection we have is that physicians are not offering this as a choice. Right. And that's where some of them are. The, the problem we have uh, among the many problems in this is we don't know who's offering what. Right. So, uh, for example, I had a conversation with an uh, endocrinologist uh, a couple of years ago, and I was telling her about... Uh, you know, what my take on low-carb diets was. And yep. she said, well, that's pretty much what we do in the clinic. Right. And I said, but probably not systematically. <laughs> and she said, that's true. So, you know, we don't know. Uh, we don't know where we are, really. Uh, certainly, uh, 
you know, I work in a medical center where the average clinician is lucky if they have enough time to fill out all their paperwork. Right. They don't have time to fight with uh, the ADA or uh, AMA. And so we don't and we don't know whether they uh, even know what the recommendations of the nutrition committees are. Right. Uh, So it's tough to tell what's going on. Well, Richard, when you and I first spoke well over a decade now ago, uh, I remember, you know, asking you the questions about, you know, what what do you think the percentage of doctors or even just actual number of doctors are that that are using carbohydrate restriction with their patients? And, you know, it was so minuscule. There was just so few and far between. But I think with the proliferation of first the Atkins diet, then we had the paleo primal come along, which isn't explicitly carbohydrate restriction, but at lower carbs than the standard American diet. And then now keto, it seems more and more patients are kind of pushing those doctors more towards this direction. So I'm hopeful that maybe good things are happening, even if it is on the down low. Oh, there's no question of that. I, I mean, I think uh, I see uh, 2018 uh, as the the year of low carb. It really was. Yeah, I think there were, uh, you know, uh, three or four major papers from uh, Sarah Hallberg and Nivolik and yes. from Bettina Leonard's, uh, uh, David Ludwig. Yep. And uh, we won't talk about Kevin Hall. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know about Kevin Hall. <laughs> but uh, no, the real danger is uh, the epidemiologists because the, the reaction yes. was uh, this bizarre paper from uh, Seidelman, a cardiologist who apparently had never studied. Uh, nutrition at all. And uh, I believe she was suborned by Walter Willett and wrote this crazy paper on all-cause mortality. Yes. And, you know, you really can't do a uh, epidemiologic paper on all-cause mortality. No. Unless it comes out big, you know, you could, you could, it's almost impossible uh, that you could do it in diet. Obviously, you can do it in cigarette smoking, and there's undoubtedly drugs that you can do it, but, but, it doesn't make any sense to say uh, that you can, uh, you know, add food to a food system, which is what people <laughs> are, and yeah. expect that you're going to be able to determine that it kills you. Because what, you know, what what is the percentage that you're expecting? And right. these, you're expecting just, you know, uh, tiny effects. Uh, and that's what they get is tiny effects. Well, and case in point, Richard, is that recent study that came out about eggs leading to an increased risk of heart disease and all-cause mortality. And you you look at it and you go, how in the world did they parse this from epidemiological studies and and say that it was the eggs? What what if, Did they drink Coca-Cola with the eggs? Did they have whole wheat bread with the eggs? How do we know it was the eggs? So they haven't done any randomized control clinical trial that just has patients eat eggs uh, for a period of time. How do they make those conclusions? With a straight face. Maybe it was the Kool-Aid. <laughs> it could have been the Kool-Aid, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think... Um, I, I'll tell you uh, what I think now is that the whole field of nutritional epidemiology uh, is, is almost entirely useless. Hasn't it always been? Well, it's always been, but we put up with it. <laughs> yeah. It, it stepped over a line. Yeah. I mean, the way I describe it, I've described it this way, uh, you know, several places because, you know, if Nina Teicholz writes an expose, she's bringing out a truth. 
if I write an expose, I'm a whistleblower. Because <laughs> uh, however limited uh, my collegial relations with uh, a lot of nutritionists, I'm still an inside player. Right. And um, I uh, describe it in, uh, I have a blog post on uh, whistleblowing. And the problem is that uh, you don't want to be a whistleblower because it makes everybody look bad. <laughs> I mean, the NIH is still a major funder of, uh, you know, really good science yep. and really important science. The nutritional end is kind of a disaster. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't want to go after the NIH. And of course, it's a little strange blowing a whistle on something that's out in the open. Uh, I mean, all of these papers from the Harvard School of Public Health are right there. Yeah. And uh, rather ironically, Walter Willett and Frank Hu published a, well, they published an editorial in, um, I think it was in JAMA. Yep. And uh, they, uh, well, I, I think of it as kind of an infomercial for nutritional epidemiology, but he said that uh, Bradford Hill's criteria are still relevant. Mm. And that's one of the things that's in my, uh, my book. I, the new book is not, is really a uh, second edition of the first. We yep. try, I tried to sharpen it up a lot and have added a couple of chapters. But uh, Bradford Hill was the guy who did the Cigarette Smoke Cancer Association. And uh, he he set out uh, nine criteria uh, addressing the question, under what conditions can we take an observational study to seriously imply causality? And uh, he, he came up with uh, what are, he said they were fundamentally uh, uh, common sense. He didn't mean them as uh, cut and dried uh, criteria. And of course, the major one was uh, uh, the size of the association. And so that in his original study with uh, Richard Dahl, when they looked at the incidence of, of people who had died from uh, lung cancer, and they asked, what is the relative odds that you were a smoker? And it turned out to be 20 to 1. And if you were a heavy smoker, it was 30 to 1. And uh, quite interestingly, he wondered whether the 2 to 1 ratio that he found for heart disease was real. And... Uh, we hardly ever see two to one in uh, nutritional epidemiology. Right. So it's uh, it's a house of cards. It's not real. Yeah. And we criticized it as it went along. You know, I wrote a letter about uh, from that uh, group who uh, were trying to show that red meat caused diabetes, which was ridiculous. Uh, and I uh, pointed out that uh, in the past 40 years, red meat has gone Red meat consumption has gone down significantly. Right. And, of course, diabetes has gone up significantly. So we went after some of these things uh, in detail. But uh, they crossed the line with Seidelman at all. And, of course, the crazy uh, uh, eggs are back. <laughs> Cholesterol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and then the whole AFib study that came out, too. And when you look at the actual... Uh, percentage of carbohydrates consumed in the quote keto end of things, it was forty four percent of their calories coming coming from carbohydrates. So they didn't really measure carbohydrate restriction, uh, and even in the highest carb category, it was still like in the fifties. So statistically, there was no difference between the groups, but they tried to make it look like there was a huge difference. Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, it's time to say you can't keep doing that. Uh, exactly. 
But here's the thing. Every time one of these studies comes out, they get all of this great publicity and all of the uh, mainstream you know, newspaper articles and magazines, and it's talked about on the news and people lose their minds, Richard. How does the keto person that's trying to do this and trying to convince their parents and their family members and friends that they're not killing themselves when this kind of bad science proliferates? Well, that's uh, the intended contribution of the book and, uh, well, many books, including yours, you have to understand how to read these papers. Right. And it uh, uh, shouldn't be like that. Yeah. The uh, obligation of an author in a scientific paper is to make clear what's going on. But uh, if they don't, you can uh, figure it out for yourself. I, uh, my publisher asked me what the main take-home message is. And the main take-home message is, uh, and I quoted uh, Macbeth, which is my own little pretension, but uh, <laughs> Macbeth's doctor says, therein the patient must minister to himself. you mm. got to go after it yourself. And, uh, you know, your life could be at stake, and so it's worth a shot. you got to do it. Do you like cookies? Jeff Free started Fat Snacks, S-N-A-X, in 2017 to make his keto lifestyle way more delicious. Fat Snacks cookies are soft-baked to perfection using coconut flour, butter, and almond flour. First time I tried these Fat Snacks cookies, oh my goodness, you guys, I fell in love. Plus, they're sugar-free, contain just 1 to 2 grams of net carbs, and have up to 9 grams of fat. Jeff and his team are proud to have become the top-selling keto-friendly cookie, all with just 1 to 2 grams of net carbs per serving. Fat Snacks flavors include chocolate chip, peanut butter, and lemony lemon. And they recommend you start with the variety pack on your first order. Head on over to fatsnacks.com slash Jimmy. That's F-A-T-S-N-A-X.com slash Jimmy. And use the coupon code L-L-V-L-C at checkout for 5% off of a single order or 10% off of your first subscription order. At Snacks Cookies. Are you looking for whole food supplements for your ketogenic lifestyle? Then let me introduce you to Further Food. Go to furtherfood.com and you'll see that they source the highest quality ingredients on the planet. They have collagen peptides and my favorite, the gelatin powder to make those yummy gummies. And all of it is sourced from grass-fed, pasture-raised bovine collagen from Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. Guys, this is really high-quality collagen and gelatin. There's no hormones or antibiotics. It's non-GMO, and it's the most tasteless and easiest to use on the market. And if you're not using collagen and gelatin, you need to be adding this to your ketogenic lifestyle. Style. It helps reduce wrinkles, increase skin elasticity, making your skin firmer and softer. Collagen helps nails and hair grow longer and stronger while helping to rebuild your bones and strengthen your joints and ligaments. Collagen also helps with digestion and will help you curb your carb cravings. Again, head on over to furtherfood.com, enter the coupon code JIMMY at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. Elevate your wellness. Further so Richard you are in this space of research and you have been for a very long time you've put in the footwork and you you're still involved in that uh, we're going to talk about the the work with cancer and ketogenic here in a minute uh, you and Dr. Uh, Gene Fine but help the layperson 
because, and I try to educate people this way. Sometimes it doesn't always click though, of, of how you can identify a bad science. Is it the, like, if you see 30,000 participants over a 17 year period, the, the general lay public sees that, oh my gosh, this is so comprehensive. I see that and I yawn. Well, I, uh, I think I posted this on Facebook. If you think that a large N is always better. You can go on YouTube and see 10,000 people uh, singing the Ode to Joy from the Beethoven's Ninth. And uh, you can decide whether that <laughs> definitely makes it better. Yeah. Uh, and so they see the large number and they think, oh, it, it, it must be more meaningful. Well, so, yeah. Sometimes the large number is, is the worst thing because That's you right. lose track of everything. You, uh, there are always confounders. There's always difficulties. And there's always a degree of randomness, which gets worse as the numbers get bigger. Yes. In addition, the sharpness of the statistics is, in fact, an artifact of large numbers. So, uh, you know, good statistical analysis will, will correct for the fact that uh, it's going to get better with large numbers. But uh, there are lots of signs, you know. I'm actually writing some articles along these lines, but and my contribution is... How does a scientist read a scientific paper? Right. And uh, the first thing uh, I do is I look for the pictures. So, uh, and of course, they're called figures. But uh, if the author can't explain it to you simply in a graphic way, that's suspicious. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the figures, you got to look at the numbers. So uh, the famous study of the Mediterranean diet, if you, if you uh, look at it, the... I think it was published in the New England Journal, and they published it in, in a very accurate, honest way because they showed you, rather than percentages, they showed you the absolute incidence of benefit in cardiovascular disease, and it was trivial. It was like 2%, which would be okay if you were talking about a drug. But when you're talking about the Mediterranean diet, there's nothing about those kinds of studies that is in the range of 2%. Right. So, uh, you know, that's one, uh, that's one indication. Another good indication is if a, uh, if a study uses value judgments as if they were facts, that's got to raise the alarm. So if they're, if they're talking about a healthy diet, uh, already you know you're in trouble. Because <laughs> if, we, if we knew what a healthy diet was, we wouldn't have an obesity. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, uh, my favorite was the uh, study of the DASH diet, Yes, where they did a control with lower carbs. And they said, in the context of a healthy diet, reducing carbohydrates improve things. So how healthy was the <laughs> diet if you could prove it by taking out some of the carbs? So there are a lot of those. Yeah. Evidence-based is a uh, good value judgment. Mm -hmm. And I've uh, given a couple of talks and uh, had a paper, and I'm uh, trying to write it into a more comprehensive paper, uh, thinking about evidence in the context of a court of law, which is the other place where you introduce evidence. And a court of law, you can't tell, you can't say that uh, uh, your data is evidence. Somebody, a judge has to decide uh, that it's admissible. Right, right. And it has to be subject to uh, cross-examination and other criteria. And uh, the jury has to decide if it's compelling. And you don't have any of that in so-called evidence-based medicine. So uh, that's one thing to look for. If, yep, yep. Uh, 
the author's patting himself on the back. That's a bad sign. <laughs> so, Richard, my biggest problem with epidemiological type of studies and using that as primary science, which uh, we heard Dr. Joel Kahn, the vegan uh, doctor on Joe Rogan's podcast uh, several months back. He was having a debate with Chris Kresser about red meat and whether it's healthy. And he he made a statement that. Oh, well, yeah, 80 percent of the science that comes out in nutrition is epidemiological and it's good science. <laughs> and I'm going, OK, so when you do epidemiological science and you're looking at all these different research papers side by side by side, they all have different modalities by which they gathered that data. Uh, some good, some not so good. Uh, the whole survey and trying to remember what you ate the last three years when most people can barely remember what they ate the last three days. Um, it, it's just such it's so ripe with flaw, so ripe with uh, misleading conclusions from these researchers that literally it's just totally irrelevant. Thou hast said it. Uh, I, I don't think I can add much to that. Uh, you taught me well over the years, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> And this is something you've been out there for many years. Uh, you taught biochemistry in medical school. Do you still do that? Well, the curriculum is uh, changed somewhat now. Yeah. So that we don't have as many formal lectures. And uh, right now I'm primarily teaching uh, graduate students. Sure. But I, I expect to be teaching medical students again uh, soon. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of these pathways uh, of metabolism simply aren't being uh, I guess, acknowledged within the context of nutrition, which is why I always loved talking to you because you'd have this great educational opportunity with these medical school students that become the doctors of tomorrow, um, trying to at least give them that connection between nutrition and how all these metabolic pathways that they're learning about uh, work and, and that nutrition plays a key role in it. Well, I I think you don't have to be an expert because the, uh, obviously people have understood the take-home message, which is uh, the uh, primary role of the glucose insulin axis in controlling metabolism. Right. And uh, that's not all there is, but that's a good start. And, uh, you know, not addressing that is, is a serious flaw. Yeah. Do you sense that that's going to change at all moving forward in the medical zeitgeist, so to speak? Are we going to see any move in the direction of acknowledging nutrition and, and adding it to the curriculum at all? It's already changed drastically. I mean, if the conference that you went to was probably uh, the second of that year. Yep. The first one was in 2004, and that was the only one. Right. And uh, interestingly, one of the uh, speakers that we had uh, was George Cahill, who did the primary work on ketogenic uh, uh, response to ketone bodies yes. and starvation. And uh, that's where the number of 130 grams of glucose for the brain comes from. And uh, what he explained was that that's about what the brain needs under normal conditions, which is to say not in the presence of uh, uh, ketosis. And that number is uh, has been morphed into what you need all the time. So I just read something coming out of Harvard where they used that number, but did not say, as Cahill showed, that if you are in ketosis, that can go down to 60 grams a day. So they left that out, which is uh, dishonest because uh, they know. Yeah. And um, so that's uh, but uh, things have changed. And they're now uh, there's now a low carbohydrate diet uh, 
every couple of weeks. And they're not all the same people. New people are understanding it. And, uh, and of course, a lot of people are, as I call it, slouching towards low carb. They're, right. You've been saying that a long time. Yeah, they've been trying to find a way to slide into low carb without losing face. So to that end, can we talk about a little bit the 2020 dietary guidelines? Because that plays such a huge role in the culture. And of course, a lot of people say, well, nobody pays attention to the guidelines, but they are at the crux of so many aspects of culture, including school lunches, military commissaries. There's so many ways that the tentacles of the dietary guidelines do get into our into our society. And so I'm not I'm not very hopeful that it's going to be that good with all the negativity that's coming out this year seemingly against keto after 2018 might have been the year of low carb keto 2019's the year let's let's bring it back down again <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little bit discouraged uh richard about what the 2020 dietary guidelines are going to say um the, the question you ask is can we talk about it no i don't want to talk about it <laughs> it's a political uh, uh travesty it's uh, foolish. So is Nina Teicholz just spinning her wheels doing Nutrition Coalition? No, I mean, uh, she's doing a good thing. I, I would, uh, I, th I think uh, when the 2015 came out, she asked if I would uh, write about uh, some of the uh, metabolic aspects and uh, what the errors were. And I yes. told her that you're, it's like uh, you're asking me to indicate what the errors were in the protocols of the elders of Zion. <laughs> Uh, which, if you don't know, it is the imaginary Semitic uh, track. It, it's uh, it's not real anymore. Yeah, it, it's yeah. a travesty, and uh, it's dishonest. And uh, I don't know whether the people. Uh, I try not to make it ad hominem, yeah. but uh, at, at some point you have to bear responsibility for uh, uh, not doing a good job, and. Uh, I mean, uh, I just noticed that Linda Van Horn is one of the people on it. Yeah, and, who's that? Uh, she's just been uh, on previous ones, and she's one of the authors of the new egg uh, study. Yeah, egg and cholesterol. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what her role is, but she's been in the business a long time, and she should know what's going on. I, I described in my book the first low-carbohydrate revolution, and uh, I originally de uh, described it as analogous to the American Revolution. Yep. And sort of the analog of Thomas Paine's common sense was Gary Taub's article in the New York Times magazine, What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie? Right. Uh, ultimately leading to good calories, bad calories. And that really changed everything. And, and that was the beginning of the revolution. The uh, What I've described as a shot heard around the world was uh, Gary Foster's uh, intervention study multi but that sort of drifted into uh, uh obscurity oh yeah that's been over a decade ago now yeah the, the shy so studies uh sooner than that yeah but there's just so many that are so much better uh, right but what i said there was that was the moment for nutritionists to say we are not sure this is the best diet but if you want to do low carb here's how we recommend it right Instead, they said, no, it's going to kill you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they did uh, the best they could with what they had to work with, yep. uh, to, intellectually speaking. But uh, it's not a good field. But uh, they're the ones who are at fault mm. and still are. And, and they're unrestrained. 
the new chapter in my book describes the actual personal and professional attack on low-carb researchers and uh, uh, health providers. And uh, most of them have backed down by now. Uh, they finally backed down on Tim Noakes, but they're still uh, refusing to acknowledge the uh, uh, brutal and insensitive treatment uh, of Jennifer Elliott in, in right. Australia. In the, Australia, the yeah. The Australian Dietetic Association has uh, doubled down on it. And, uh, and of course, uh, of course, uh, very uh, personally upsetting to Jennifer and uh, very inappropriate and insensitive, but it's also adding uh, fuel to the resistance to low carb, which is just uh, going to keep people fat and uh, diabetic. Do you ever wonder where your meat comes from? Today, over 80% of beef comes from industrialized processes and companies don't want you to know the source. Now we have a company that cares about where your beef is coming from. They're called CrowdCow. Visit crowdcow.com slash show to learn how they do things differently. They give you full transparency into the independent farms that they work with. And whether you're looking for quality grass-fed beef or luxurious Japanese Wagyu, Crowd CrowdCow is the craft meat marketplace. Food transparency is the wave of the future, and it gives consumers access to both flavor and choice. We no longer have to put up with CAFO beef and industrialized agriculture. It just doesn't have to be that way anymore. Again, they're called CrowdCow, and they source the best quality steaks that you can't get anywhere else in the world. Visit crowdcow.com slash lowcarbshow, and they'll give you $25 off of your first order. Be informed. Know the source. Eat better meat. CrowdCow. If you love great olive oil, do I have a deal for you? As one of my listeners, you're entitled to receive for $1, listen to this, for just $1, a $39 bottle of one of the world's finest artisanal olive oils. And what makes this oil really special? It was just fresh pressed at the new harvest, so it's bursting with more harvest fresh flavor than any olive oil you've ever tasted. It's yours for just one buck to help cover shipping as your introduction to the fresh pressed olive oil club. And there's no obligation to buy anything now or ever. But what exactly is fresh pressed olive oil? And why is it so much more flavorful than store-bought olive oil? The problem with store-bought olive oils is that they can sit on store shelves for months, even years, growing stale or even rancid. The olive, after all, is a fruit. And olive oil is similar to a fruit juice in that it's much more flavorful when fresh pressed. And that's what's unique about oils from my friends at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They rush their oils direct to your door by plane and special delivery truck straight from the latest harvest. This means that you, your family, and lucky guests can enjoy top-of-the-line artisanal olive oils at their peak of harvest fresh flavor and nutritional value. This is great news for us low-carb lovers because pure fresh-pressed olive oil has zero carbs. Zero carbs. It adds whole layers of amazing flavor to your favorite low-carb dishes, your roasted vegetables, healthy salads, grilled meats, delicate fish, toasted nuts. Oh, yeah. I can tell you from personal experience, once you try this fresh-pressed olive oil, you'll never go back to store-bought again. Try it yourself and see. For your 39 bottle for a buck, go to jimmyoliveoil.com. That's jimmyoliveoil.com. One more time jimmyoliveoil.com
So, Richard, what do you think are the reasons why there's such animosity towards this seemingly panacea for a lot of people to find health and and weight loss and all the other benefits that we know come from carbohydrate restriction? What do you think is at play here? I know there's a lot of market forces from the big food companies and pharmaceutical companies that may not like (laughs) that, you know, maybe their things wouldn't be needed as much anymore. That can't be it, right? It can't be it. Well, I mean, that's a factor, but that's not the main factor. Uh, The uh, main factor is uh, unknown. We don't know why people do things. We don't know why people uh, stick by things that are not only uh, unsensible and not only harmful, but harmful to themselves. uh, I don't know why people do things. They don't like to change their mind. I can't answer that question for you. (laughs) Well, no, and there may not be an answer. It just seems perplexing with all we know and all the evidence, and and it's starting to pile up. A lot of the science uh, supporting carbohydrate restriction, ketogenic diets, what's been your heart's cry for for decades now. Um, It it seems, in light of all the evidence, irrational that people would not embrace this. There's got to be forces at play, and I know the vegans are very loud, and they they kind of convolute this issue. And you've got big food companies, you've what? got big what? pharma. What's that? Excuse me. People irrational. <laughs> Who knew, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Richard, I want to hit one more subject before we let you go here today, and it was the subject of chapter 19 of your book. Again, you guys, the book is called Nutrition in Crisis. Uh, by Dr. Richard Feynman, and you've been a part of uh, looking at a clinical study um, of keto with cancer. You and Dr. Gene Fine, I remember going to New York City uh, and you guys presenting this information, and it was just so amazing, yet a lot of the oncologists, they're scared to death of the K-word. Well, I think less uh, than uh, in diabetes. That's... uh... Uh, which, which sounds irrational. Well, I mean, at least the ADA has now recognized carbohydrate restriction as an option. I haven't heard any oncologist come out and say, oh, yeah, uh, let's try to starve cancer cells that are glucose-dependent cancer cells. Let's try to starve them of what's feeding them. Well, we don't know that that's going to work. That's what we're trying to find that's out. That's right. That's right. I mean, I mean the as a research project, we don't get resistance, but we have to admit, I mean, we don't know that ketogenic diets may not uh, make some cancers worse. That's right. We don't even know whether at some level they make some cancers better and at higher levels make some cancers. We don't, we're, we're pretty ignorant here. I mean, that's what we're trying to find out. What we're, I can tell you the work that we're doing in the lab, uh, in the, uh, this is in, vi- in vitro work uh, in tissue culture. So we grow, uh, we can grow cancer cells in, in culture. And uh, what we showed is that acetoacetate, which is one of the ketone bodies, yep. will inhibit their growth and reduce ATP. Okay, now, again, this is a, a, an artificial system. It doesn't, guarantee, doesn't necessarily uh, tie to what happens if you go on a ketogenic diet. So it's, it is a model system. But one of the questions that we address is, what else is the uh, uh, ketone body doing to these cells? Right. In other words, we know that acetoacetate is an important player in metabolism. And we're asking, could it be sensitizing these cells to other stimuli? Mm. And the reason this is an important question is we, we do have quite a few drugs that will kill cancer cells, 
but they're not good uh, medications because they're so toxic to uh, normal cells. I mean, the problem you have with cancer is that a cancer is, uh, in some sense, an abnormal cell, but in another sense, it's a normal cell. It's doing uh, what normal cells want to do. It, it's uh, growing and multiplying, yep. but it's, it's not under control. So uh, killing it is also going to kill uh, a- any cell that's doing some of those things when they are under control. Yeah. So we, uh, what we've been doing is looking at uh, three different uh, cytotoxic agents, uh, rapamycin yep. uh, and methotrexate. Methotrexate is a inhibitor of the folic acid uh, system. So its indirect target is DNA synthesis. So one of the, uh, uh, you know, f- uh, folic acid exists in a dozen different forms and is a a cofactor for all kinds of enzymes. The particular enzyme is uh, the enzyme thymidylate synthase, which is required for DNA synthesis. You know, if you know the uh, letters of the bases, mm-hmm. the T in DNA is uh, thymidine. So you have to have that to, for DNA synthesis. And the rationale is that those cells that are making DNA at a high rate, multiplying very fast, name of the cancer cells, are going to be more sensitive to folic acid inhibition than, than normal. And so uh, methotrexate uh, takes out one of the uh, folic acid enzymes and thereby indirectly uh, targets thymidine. And then we're working with uh, Matthew Pincus, uh, who's also at Downstate, and he's uh, got an interesting inhibitor, which is a derivative of a, a protein called P53, which is a tumor suppressor. And that's an endogenous tumor suppressor. And he's isolated a fraction, uh, a fragment of that, which is a, uh, it's a small peptide, and it targets uh, cancer cells, but not normal cells. So we uh, use these three inhibitors, and we, we show that they will knock out the uh, the cells that were growing in culture they, they will kill the uh, the cancer cells they also uh, can kill the uh, normal cells too although his pnc27 is pretty much uh, the normal cells don't respond to it so we have three different kinds of inhibitors mm-hmm. and what we're uh, trying to see is suppose we put these cells in a ketogenic environment if we treat them with acetoacetate Will the these cytotoxic agents become uh, much better, hmm. uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be able to use less? Now we previously showed that acetoacetate doesn't affect the normal cells, so it is uh, an effect on cancer cells. So basically, we grow up the cells in the presence of acetoacetate, and what we've shown is that you need much less of any of these inhibitors uh, to kill the cancer cells. Now. This is all very preliminary. Okay, right. I don't. You don't want to run out and say, uh, "Oh, look what Feynman did." Uh, right. It's. Uh, I always quote uh, Albert St. Georgi: uh, "Today we celebrate. Tomorrow we do the controls." Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, experimental work, especially with tissue yeah. culture, is. Uh, uh, you have to be very careful for right. artifacts, but it's all going in the direction that we expect. So we're, we're very optimistic right now. So, Richard, a lot of the uh, like exogenous ketones that have proliferated here over the past few years, they are beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, salts. Is there an acetoacetate kind of exogenous ketone that could be possibly used if you do find that what you're looking at does help to inhibit the cancer cell development? Well, they're in equilibrium. 
Okay. Uh, so, and, and of course, uh, beta hydroxybutyrate is more stable than acetoacetate. And, but in the end, in the cell, acetoacetate is the thing that does the work because right. it gets converted to uh, uh, acetyl-CoA. But uh, so, no, I don't think that's uh, necessary. Our problem is the, the reverse, is that some of our cells don't respond as well or at least reliably to beta-hydroxybutyrate. Gotcha. So we don't know why that is. Uh, on the other hand, it's uh, known that uh, some cancers are not good at converting beta-hydroxybutyrate into acetoacetate. So uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate in the circulation is the uh, major ketone body. Yes. Uh, in the cell, you, you do need to convert it to acetoacetate. So uh, that's one of the numerous minor points that has to be sorted out. I'm certainly glad you and Gene have taken on this project. I know it's been your heart's cry for well over a decade now trying to get real answers to this because, quite frankly, like you said earlier, the NIH has shown no interest in this subject. And so in the lack of that, and are you having trouble find, finding funding for the kind of research you want to do? Well, uh the NIH may be slowly moving. They did not fund this uh, research. Um, at the time, they didn't. Well, they uh, we we had to put the application into uh, uh, the cancer uh, uh, study section, which didn't seem to know what ketone bodies were. Yeah. Uh, but that may be changing. We were very fortunate to find a, a private donor. Nice. Uh, so we, uh, and uh, uh, th that's changed the whole ballgame. And it actually started from our uh, crowdsourcing. Yes. Uh, where, you know, we ran this on uh, experiment.com and we're so grateful. You know, so many people came forward with small donations or, uh, and uh, we found it uh, very, very touching, and uh, and of course very helpful. I mean, uh, uh, so we're uh, we're really grateful to everybody out there. You know, a, a, a lot of your audience is really supporting this. Yeah, we we tried to get the word out as soon as I saw you were doing a crowdsourcing campaign. I'm like, finally, this is this is the way some low carb keto research in the lack of support of groups like NIH, the NIH uh, to get it done. Because there's so many of us that are so passionate about this subject that we're willing to put our money where our mouth is and support researchers like you and Gene who are trying to find answers to a very serious problem. And I have to say that uh, we're just really grateful to the people out there. And, uh, of course, I'm a, a guy from Brooklyn, so I'm going to come out and start asking for more money uh, pretty soon. <laughs> well, when that happens, you let me know, and I'll get the word out for you, okay. my friend. I'll, I'll we, help you out. We appreciate the help. His name, Dr. Richard Feynman. Definitely go check out his brand-new edition of Nutrition in Crisis, Flawed Studies, Misleading Advice, and the Real Science of human metabolism. He also has a blog he mentioned earlier, FeynmanTheOther.com, because he doesn't want you to mistake him for that other physicist uh, Feynman that's out there, Richard Feynman, F-E-I-N-M-A-N-TheOther.com. Well, Richard, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and thanks so much for being here today on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. Uh, thank you. 
Uh, living la vida loca. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show.com. Woo! Disc of Light. <laughs>